Good morning. Hello. It might be evening. Sorry. Um, but hello, you are listening to Basically. And I am Stephanie Preisner. And this week I am talking to myself, basically. Uh, well, not really myself, actually. I'm kind of more talking to you guys. I put a question box on Instagram. Actually, they have this new strange feature where you put a little button that says DM me and then people click on that and send you messages. So I've had so many questions. I'm actually quite... I listen to a lot of podcasts myself and podcast hosts are like, we were so overwhelmed with the response to our call out for questions. And I always think that they're just trying to make it sound like uh, loads of people ask questions. But actually, lots of you did ask questions. And I was very vague, as I typically am, about what I wanted the questions to be about. And that was by design because I also wanted to get a sense of, you know, what you guys wanted to listen to and what you wanted to know about. So... There are a lot of questions and they're quite vague, Um, not vague, quite broad. And I'm going to try and get through them now. Um, But before I start, uh, there are two things. One, thank you to everyone who has downloaded and uh, reviewed the podcast. It does really mean a lot to me. I read your reviews and it makes me laugh. And uh, I just I'm very grateful because it really means a lot when you rate and review the podcast. And then the reason that I'm not having a guest this week and I want to do the mailbox episode is because last week something took over the news cycle in a way that I haven't seen before, particularly during coronavirus times when social distancing has been at the forefront of public health. The Black Lives Matter movement really made it onto the headlines in a way that it needs to, but in a way that I haven't seen it happen before. And I took a second. Um, A lot of people blacked out their Instagrams or they put up quotes. And I didn't do any of that because, and two people have asked me this week in the question boxes uh, to talk about Black Lives Matter or direct provision. And I'm not going to do that today because this needs something bigger than just a question in a mailbox episode. I want to do a whole episode on it. Um, But then one person on Instagram got onto me and was like, I am noting your silence on this and I'm unfollowing you and whatever. And this thing blew up because I responded. I don't usually respond to people who are being hateful. But the pace at which I am processing this is not in action. And I don't want it to be mistaken as such. And the reason that I didn't black out my Instagram was because for me, when I do something small like that, my brain, I'm, I've always been a kid in school who was looking for the easy way out. I always, you know, if we had to like run from one end of the field to the other through the cones, I'd just go in a straight line because the path of least resistance is my natural instinct. And when I saw people putting up Nelson Mandela quotes and Desmond Tutu quotes and blacking out their Instagram, I understood what they were doing. But for me, it's dangerous because if I do that, then my brain thinks, yeah, I've done something now. That's that done. That box ticked. And and this time, that's not enough. I want to do more. I can do more. I have a big platform. I have a responsibility to do more. So I didn't do anything because I'm planning what I'm going to do. And it's on the way. And you will, you know, you will. it will come in due time. And uh, I just wanted to say that because I don't want people to mistake the slow pace at which I'm processing this massive thing as inaction.
So thank you for your patience. And now onto the questions. So these are very random and I'm just going to take them in the order that they came in. So um, there's kind of no sense or meaning to them. Hi, Stephanie. I'm a massive fan, so my question is a little selfish. I could listen to you all day. So my question is, if you were offered your own radio show, would you take it? And what would you like to talk about? What would your show be about? I would love to be able to listen to you every day. Martina. Well, Martina, um, if so the first part of your question is, would I do a radio show? I have seen some brilliant DJs lose their shows because of listenership and I don't think it like it's a brutal industry I don't think I'd be able for the cutthroatness of it because with this podcast I get to do whatever I want like right now I am lying on my couch with a blanket over my head so that the sound is as good as it can be everyone is asleep upstairs <coughs> everyone it sounds like I live with the Von Trapps Cahill and the Mayo Man are asleep upstairs and I'm having a coffee and I'm answering questions I want to answer from people who follow me who I really like so that's a lot of privilege and that's a lot of cushioning a radio show you have producers come in they tell you what you have to talk about you have to do promotions with brands and give people you know to run competitions for nights away at hotels that you might not even want to do and I'm not sure that I would be able to do that enthusiastically enough to keep the listenership up where I wouldn't be publicly fired and then there'd be news stories of like Stephanie loses her breakfast show. Um, If I had a radio show, I'd want to do something like this, which is to talk to people about the things that interest them. My whole thing is making sense of complex issues, particularly politics and economics. So that's what I would want. And I don't know that there's a broad enough audience for that. I'm not sure, but... Um, I like talking to people, but I'm not great at small talk, you know, like on Sunday I was on the Brendan O'Connor show and we talk about the papers, but off air, like Brendan is really brilliant at what he does. He's able to navigate situations that I would just freeze up on. I just don't know that I'm good enough really to have a radio show that people would want to listen to, I guess. Um, But I do a lot of Instagram stories, so maybe that's enough. Sorry, Martina. <laughs> um, so the next question then is, I hope this isn't too weird, personal, intrusive a question. What are your thoughts on wearing makeup? I noticed that, like myself, you don't seem to wear it in your normal day-to-day stories, but you do for special occasions or work things. I sometimes feel like I'm not making an effort by not wearing makeup regularly, but I am clean, neat and blessed with good skin, so I don't need to wear it. It makes more of an occasion when I do put it on. I guess I'm not sure exactly what the question really is, but I suppose... Do you think it's necessary for people to wear makeup to work? So this question, I guess, depends on where you work, what their policy is. And I don't like wearing makeup. I don't like the feeling of it on my skin. And for me, it's a body confidence issue because I feel that when I'm wearing makeup and people tell me that I look lovely, I feel like what they're saying is that I don't look lovely without makeup. and that's absolutely not what they're saying but I feel like when I paint makeup onto my face it's almost to make myself more acceptable in the world and that's a really dangerous thought for me because it's a thought that I have frequently in other parts of my life as well and it doesn't help me. Other people love getting compliments when they wear their makeup because a lot of people are artistic you know like it's a craft and 
what they hear when someone compliments them is, wow, the makeup you have done is beautiful and artistic and you're very talented and you look very beautiful. And that's a compliment. Whereas for me, I don't wear it because the compliments are then missing from the rest of my life and it and it makes me insecure. So that's why I don't wear it. But I also realise it's a privilege that I have, that I have good skin, which is totally a genetic thing. I don't have a makeup um, uh, face washing regime. I just wash my face with water. And sometimes I don't even, at night time, I forget. Um, But actually, since Nana died, I always wash my face at night because I always put on moisturiser at night. And I have this image of her telling me once that I was just rubbing the dirt into my face (laughs) once if I moisturise without washing my face. Um, But for some people, makeup gives them a lot of confidence that's, I don't get my confidence, I don't derive my confidence from my looks. So it, that's not the case for me. But if people feel more confident wearing makeup and they have a client facing job, then absolutely, I would think it's a great idea. Other people love putting it on. They love the process. They love the ritual of it. So therefore, those people should also continue to do it. And I just feel like anyone who doesn't like putting it on, doesn't like wearing it, shouldn't. And people who love it absolutely should. And I never think that there should be a blanket ban or a blanket um, imposition of a rule like women should wear makeup. I think both men and women who enjoy wearing it should wear it. And if they don't, then they shouldn't, I guess. But that's my reasons for not wearing it. Okay, on to the next question. I'm sorry if this is like a clunky episode, but I keep having to go back to my phone where I have accumulated the questions from Instagram. So this is from a woman called Jean. Do you have views on how women treat other women in the workplace? I have 10 years working, I have more than 10 years working experience, four as a manager, and I feel that a few women in manager positions try to undermine other women and use this to dominate power with men. Are there, or people in authority by putting down other females? Do you have any thoughts on this? Wow, okay. Um, so women in managerial positions undermine other women to gain kind of power with men. So the thing about power, I read this book once actually that was quite interesting about how women, it was a kind of a science fiction thing about how women gained power to to shock, like they, this fictional story where they got the power to like basically electrocute people and they took over the world. And the underlining message of the book was that anyone who is in power, whether it's women, whether it's men, whether it's white people, whatever, whoever is in power is going to be corrupted by that power because they're going to be reigning over other people who are not in power. And that creates such a imbalance that it is corruptive. I wonder whether this is a f- gender issue from this question um, or if it's just that people in power... It sounds though that like your experience is that women are fine when they're, um, in your experience, women are fine when they're colleagues, but as soon as one of them becomes a manager, they become super bitchy to try and get on side with the men almost. Um, Being a manager, being in power is kind of a masculine energy. And I do think that that sort of drive, that drive, that responsibility that comes with being in charge of a business um, in a capitalist world is quite cutthroat and something that we associate with with masculine energy. But I also know that I have worked with 
many women. Actually, most of my producers are women. So they would kind of be my managers. It's hard for me to say because I don't work in the same tiered system. My job is, you know, like I have a producer and they give me notes. They tell me what to do. They commission my work and then we give it to a producer. We give it to a broadcaster or a streamer or whatever. And sometimes the feminine energy that I work with, the women that I work with are so almost maternal because the ideas that I give are like, I often refer to my ideas as like, incubated children like they're premature babies because if I say an idea to someone before it's fully thought through it's really delicate thing and then I give it to some of my female producers and they're so brilliant with it and we bring it to life together and then other women are just bitches because people men and women are bitches like some men are lovely and some men are awful and some women are lovely and some what did I say some men are awful and some women are awful it's just a I don't know that it's gender specific, but I think in your position, if you've noticed this, then you could do a little study, like look around and see if you do think that it is a gender thing and then confront the women on specifics rather than, that's what I think if you're going to take on this issue, be specific rather than be general to say that it's a women's issue. So go to your manager and give her or the person you're talking about, give them several examples of times that they have behaved in the way that is offensive to you and see if you can work it out that way rather than saying you're a woman and therefore that's the issue. Um, my voice is getting kind of croaky because I'm, I'm under a blanket <laughs> breathing in my own carbon dioxide and uh, I haven't uh, had a drink yet. I'm going to have some of my coffee. Sorry about the sound of this now. Maybe he'll edit it out. Maybe he won't. Have I told you about Alan? Alan is my producer. I've never met him though. Actually, I did meet him when I did PJ Gallagher and Suzanne Kane's podcast, but we've done this whole podcast thing remotely. So I've just done all my podcast interviews over Zoom and uh, and sent them to him and then he makes them into the glorious things that they are. This week's podcast is brought to you by a new podcast called What Do You Want to Know? It's a podcast that takes your curiosity as its inspiration. Every episode features an expert answering questions posed by you about specific topics. So it's kind of like this podcast, and I think you'll like it. They talk about everything from how sign language works, to whether viruses are alive, to what exactly a 5G network even is. You can also suggest topics for them, so in future episodes you could finally get the answers to questions that you want to know. So that's the podcast, What Do You Want to Know? And it's available on all podcast players, wherever you get this podcast. On to the next question. When, oh when, will we have a government? What is the process? Where are the parties in that process? Oh lads, if I knew the answer to this question. So they keep saying maybe by the end of this week, Thursday. And so what happens here is, okay, so there are three parties trying to form a government. Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and the Green Party. And then some independents, right? But if you are a political party, you have members. So say there, there's Leo Varadkar and there's the minister for fine, like all of the people that you've heard of, Pascal Donoghue, they're all members of the Fine Gael party. But they're like, say Liverpool, right? <laughs> Liverpool have its players. So that would be like Leo Varadkar, Simon Harris, Pascal Donoghue. And then they have it's their fans, which are just us, the public, who, who vote. But they also have members, people who pay 
to be Liverpool supporters, to go to the matches, to influence who's their coach, to decide on teams, you know, like members who pay up to have a say in how the party is run. And political parties are the same. So Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have members who pay to be part of the party, who go to the Ordeshina, which is their AGM, which isn't happening this year because coronavirus. And so at the start of the election, right, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, the Labour Party, the Greens, all the parties would have gone to their members and been like, OK, what, what are our issues that we're going to campaign with? And I'm going to make it really overly simple now just to make my point. But so say Fianna Fáil members were like, OK, we want to campaign for blue circles. And Fina Gale's party members were like, okay, you have to campaign for yellow rectangles. The Green Party, for ease, we'll say they wanted green stars. And Sinn Féin wanted yellow, or no, we've done yellow, purple flowers, right? So what's happening now is these parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gale and the Green Party, are in rooms trying to set together a programme for government. They need the three of them to go into government, to have enough numbers to be in power. But they're trying to work out what they're going to be a government like, because the Green Party cannot all of a sudden switch from green stars to yellow triangles or blue circles. They wanted, they went door to door and they said, we are going to bring in green stars. And everyone said, right, I'll vote for you. And the people who voted for them and their members are going to be really angry if all of a sudden they are not bringing in green stars, if all of a sudden they switch to blue circles or yellow rectangles. So each of the parties is now trying to, I guess, negotiate literally with the other parties to be like, okay, it has to be green stars. And they're like, no, no, no. We said yellow circles, we said this. So it's like, okay, can we have two sides of our green star? So they're saying, okay, you can have two sides of your green star. We want three quarters of our yellow rectangle. And we want, you know, four fifths of that blue circle. And so that's what they're trying to do right now. They're trying to come together in a way that they can all work with. And the issues that they're facing are things like the pension age, like carbon emissions, like the health system, like slauncha care, like childcare, all of these things that they're now trying to agree on. They think they will have something agreed together as parties by Thursday, but then they have to go back to their members. So, you know, Jurgen Klopp has to go back to the Liverpool members who pay to be part of the team, pay to be part of the club. They have to go back, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens to their parties and say, OK, this is what I've negotiated. You know, we can't have five stars. We can't have five points on the green star, but we could have two. But then they're going to do this thing with pensions and they need their parties to agree on it so that we can have a programme for government. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know if there's going to be another election. Another thing that could happen is, you know, the Taoiseach could go back to the president and say, we tried to form a government and we can't, we need another election. And Hall or Michael D. Higgins could say, no, you're not having another election. It's pandemic. You had your election. Now you have to go and find a government. And then they would have to change again and try a different uh, combination of parties. So I have no idea when we're going to have a government. I think it will be soon. Uh, I think on Thursday they will have a uh, program for government that they will then go back to their members with and hopefully 
the members will pass it, but I'm not sure that they actually will. Um, so I hope that makes a little bit of sense. Once government information happens, I will do a podcast on it. Question for the podcast. Why does the media slash people always blame the council slash government for its problems? For example, beaches being covered in rubbish. People blame the council for not enough bins and not the people who dumped. Um, this is across the board. I feel this sometimes with um, even how government comes under fire, particularly like around the pandemic, where right now, you know, this pandemic came out of nowhere. No one knew what was happening. And so we had to abdicate our responsibility to those 5.30 briefings from Tony Hulhan, who would tell us what to do, or Leo Varadkar coming out to make a speech and telling us to stay inside our houses, because we didn't know what was happening, but they did, um, because they were on the forefront of public health advice. And now we're criticising them for doing it wrong, even though they were doing their best in a situation that they'd never experienced before. People, I think it's called cognitive dissonance. People they need someone to blame and it's much more comfortable to blame someone else than to accept that either you're a bad person or people are bad people. So the government, by their very nature, are in moral negative equity. People just, they they rat on them, they hate them, they blame them for everything that's wrong in the world, even though the government is made up of people who are also f- human and also flawed and make mistakes. But it's much easier for our brains to accept that someone is wrong and someone is bad and someone is mean than to accept that the world is chaotic and good people do strange things. Like, particularly, let's say, on the beach issue, if you live near a beach and you know that during lockdown only your neighbours have been near the beach and only people that you know and like and are your community, your people have been on the beach and you see litter, it's much easier more comfortable for you to accept that the council are in the wrong for not having enough bins rather than accept that people you know and like and are in community with are litter bugs. It's just more comforting for your brain, more comfortable for your brain. So I think that is why people like to blame the wrong, more easy thing than accept that there is chaos in the world, people do bad things, and that in order to change they might need to have some tough conversations with people that they love. Next question from a fellow person called Stephanie. Hey Stephanie, I've recently started listening to your podcast and I've been loving it and learning loads. I don't have a specific question, but I would love to hear more about your screenwriting career. I actually watched your show on Netflix before I followed you on here and I really enjoyed it. So I'd love to hear more about the process of how it got made and picked up by Netflix, etc. So for those of you who don't know, I don't know if there's anyone, but it, I have a show on Netflix. It's called Can't Cope, Won't Cope. Two series of it are on Netflix currently. And uh, my full-time job is as a screenwriter. So this podcast is just a thing that I do because I started doing Instagram TV during lockdown. And then I decided that it would be better to be a podcast. And um, But my actual full-time job is as a screenwriter. I write television for I have two contracts in the US at the moment and one in the UK. Um so my screenwriting career it's I started working as so I trained as an actor and then I started writing my own plays for myself to perform and for other people to perform. And one of those that got a lot of success was called Salpadin is my boyfriend which was about a girl whose relationship breaks down 
because her boyfriend moves to Australia and uh, her primary relationship becomes one with the codeine-based painkiller, the very dangerous painkiller, Salpidine, which is highly addictive and very dangerous. Um, And so I toured that around the world and it was translated into another language and I was doing it in Australia and all over the world. And a producer came to me and said, do you have, have you ever thought about writing for television? And I said, no. And then we talked more and I came up with the idea of Can't Cope, Won't Cope and the two girls who move from Cork to Dublin and have this crazy party lifestyle and this kind of semi-toxic friendship that is hard to hard to identify as toxic initially, I guess. Um, so, yeah, then I wrote Can't Cope, Won't Cope series one and RT picked it up and it was um, then shown on BBC Three. And then one day I got an Apple Watch for Christmas and I was getting changed and I was coming out of the shower and I was absolutely naked except for my Apple Watch and putting on moisturiser, I think, or drying myself. And my Apple Watch beeped and it was Twitter notifying me that Kanko Bungo was now on Netflix. And I had no idea that it had been bought by Netflix. I had no idea how that had even happened. I just went into my room and I saw that it was indeed on Netflix. Um, so I contacted my agent who contacted the producer and was like, um, do you want to give us a heads up next time this is happening, please? And I think over the Christmas holidays with everything, it had just gotten a bit crazy and she'd forgotten to tell us. But um, Netflix do things. So you'll see on Netflix, there's Netflix originals. And then there's things that are just on Netflix that Netflix haven't made. And they're called acquisitions. So how it happened was Netflix look at things that are being illegally downloaded. and they value them as, you know, uh, they take note that people are illegally downloading this thing and then they try and acquire it so that people will have it on their platform. Because Netflix is, um, I've been in the, I've worked with Netflix in Los Angeles in their studio, in in their offices. And their thing is they want to have everyone's favourite television show on their platform so that everyone is going there. So they have a very broad range of things. Um, so that's kind of how it happened and it's on there again now um if you want to watch it and I can't really say much about um the things that I'm working on at the moment because there's loads of like rules and things that you have to sign but as I know more you will know more and yeah that's my full-time job at the moment is just writing uh tv shows so it's kind of fun but also kind of lonely hi Stephanie This is from someone called Ant. Hi, Stephanie. For the podcast, I would love if you talk about what it's like to write a book, get published and all the steps leading from idea to publication. I'm actually going to do a full episode on this, so I'm not going to answer this now, but I have gotten my publisher. um, I've asked her. So we're going to do an episode together about how to get a book published and the realities of that. Because I think some people think that, oh, I'm going to write a book. And then they think that it'll be on shelves, but it's actually quite a tricky process. So I'm going to go in detail about that in an episode, I think in about next week or maybe the week after. So the next one, this is based on one of the articles that I wrote in the Sun Independent a few weeks ago. For the podcast, the friends thing, when did you realise that you can only sustain two or three friendships? We all feel so guilty for not seeing people all the time and making new friends, but you are so right. For me anyway, after what you said, I realised if I met up more regularly with the five people I have properly connected with during the lockdown, I would be doing very well. What is the, what is it that stresses you about people or friends? Catherine. Um, I... Yeah, so this is based on an article I wrote where I said that, or was it a radio interview? Basically, at some point I said, 
I can only really sustain two or three friendships. And by that, I mean, I can only sustain two or three really close, intimate friendships where I know what is happening in that person's daily life and they know what is happening in my daily life. Of course, I can sustain more friendships where I just send the odd howie a text and we tell each other the biggest part of the news of that week and then we chat and that's also friendship and there is a place for that in my life too. But I mean, really, really close, close friendship, I guess also because now that my boyfriend has had to move in and I made that sound awful. Now that my boyfriend has moved in with me and Carl and I live together and it's been a lockdown, Carl is no longer really my friend. <laughs> Newsflash, Carl is more like my brother, I think. And I'm an only child, so I don't know really what having a brother is like, but Carl is like a cornerstone of my life, really. Um, and not needing to like meet for coffee and lunches because that hasn't been possible with Cahill. We've just been in the house together all the time. Has freed up time where I go out of the house to connect with my friends. So I've been during the lockdown going out for walks and doing like hour long conversations with my friends. Um, And the ones who live within five kilometres, I've been able recently to see and socially distantly connect with them again. Um, And I've just realised that I think in the pandemic as well, conversations were so repetitive because no one had any news. It was all just like, well, what are you doing during lockdown or what's lockdown like for you? And I find those conversations tedious. I I find that I get um, speechless, like I can't actually form a sentence because I don't care enough to think of the next question to ask. And, And it's really hard to override those things. So it's just too exhausting. And I didn't want to be having the same conversations over and over and over and over and over. And I also realized that obviously other people were feeling the same because it's not, I I always respond to people's text messages. So the people who I'm talking about that I haven't been in touch with, they also haven't been in touch with me. Um, So it's not as if I've just done a big friendship call. I just find that I feel very beloved and I feel very cherished by the people I have been in touch with in the last few weeks and I know exactly what's going on in their lives. One of them, you know, is sick. She's had the virus. She's a healthcare worker. Then I have my friend in Cork who's doing up her house. I almost feel like I can imagine, you know, like I know the colour of the paint in real time because I've spoken so much to her about those colour choices. And then there's Rachel, who some of you will know um, from my other podcast that I did with her called Situationships. And she's in New York and New York is crazy right now. But we talk every single day pretty much. Um, And I know the minutiae of her life and I feel very held, you know, as a person. And once I start getting more and more friends in, I feel less. It's kind of like highlighting a whole book. If you only highlight two or three words in a book, then those words stand out. They become special. They mean something. But if you highlight the whole book, then you might as well not highlight any of it because it all becomes kind of meaningless. I hope that doesn't sound too harsh. Um, I haven't fallen out with anyone. It's just that I've become very, very close to the people who I have been in touch with. Two questions left. (laughs) This one. This is from All New 95. Of the last 12 weeks, what was the funniest thing that has happened? Don't say Cahill face planking on the floor, although that's my top 10 and I don't even know him. Okay, so for those of you who haven't seen it. So for those of you who don't know or don't follow me, my stories on Instagram, Cahill is gas, right? 
I put him on Instagram sometimes and he is just so droll and straight and like to the point. <laughs> and we were, it was recycling night and he had like four shoe boxes, maybe it was three. And he stacked them up on top of each other and he wanted to flatten them. And he was like, hey, record me. <laughs> so I was like, you're going to fall. You're going to slip. It's a wooden floor. Those are boxes. And he was like, no, I'm not. So he jumped with his two feet together onto the boxes. And of course, the boxes went from under him and he fell flat on the floor. And it's absolutely hilarious because he jumped up. He was mortified. Like he jumped up straight away and pretended to be grand. Um... And it was really funny and it's on my Instagram and it's just gas. But I'm not allowed to choose that one. So then I was like, how do I find funny things? So I went back through my photographs to find out what was the funniest thing. And here are some photographs I have of funny times during lockdown. One, I have a picture of the Mayo Man's legs. And do you know drumsticks? Do you remember those Swizzlers? Sizzlers, was it? The, the chewy drumstick bar, half pink, half white. Well, his legs looked like that because he sat out in on the grass drinking a coffee, socially distant from his friend for, I don't know, was it two hours or something? And he <laughs> he got sunburnt and his legs look ridiculous. Um, and so I texted it to his sister and his brother saying, your brother is an idiot. But then I also sent the photo to his mother and said, your son is a lobster because obviously I didn't want to call him an idiot to his mother. Although she's probably listening to this. Hiya, Joan. Um, his sunburn's gone down now. I put Medigel on it because I'm great. So that was pretty funny because he just looks like a ridiculous person. And then there was, we had Cahill's birthday in lockdown. So I have a picture of Cahill using a two euro disposable barbecue that is balanced on a stepladder because we didn't have an outdoor table when it was really, really sunny. <laughs> and he's using all the wrong... We're just using... We're really improvising a barbecue, and that was pretty funny. And then there... It was Cahill's 30th birthday again, and I put bunting up in the garden, so I put all these flags across the garden. And there's just this really sad picture of him. He doesn't know I'm taking it. He's leaning up against the shed, listening to his headphones, and it's really sad. And there's just loads of flags... <laughs> and that was also pretty funny apart from that I don't know like we kind of find humor in a lot of things like early on when we did the Ireland AM video we did a dance routine video which is also on my Instagram and Cahill was drilling me on how to do the video properly how to learn the dance routine properly and he's like pretty strict on how I'm meant to do that and he just turned to me at one point and he was like you only have to get it right once you know because he was going to edit it and that was also pretty funny, but out of context, that's not very funny. So, um, yeah, those are the things. I do think that um, him face planting on the floor is the highlight of my lockdown, though. And now we have the final question. Oh, so this is Shirley. Hi, Stephanie. I'm a major fan of yours, but anyhow... I have a boy and he's an only child. Me and my husband could not have any more and we're okay with that now. I just want your thoughts on growing up as an only child, please. Positives and negatives. So I am an only child, yep. Um, the positives and negatives. The positives are that I got that unwavering love and attention from my mother and my grandmother. And 
I didn't have to share my things, which I'm still pretty bad at. And my birthday parties had kind of a no holds barred feel to them. All the kids could come and I just never kind of wanted for anything because the resources, the parental resources, like financial, but also emotional, were not stretched thin and they didn't have to be divided among anyone else. Um, And I always found kind of special for that. And I was always invited to things because I think if you have lots of brothers and sisters, you might not be invited to things because other people are like, oh, God, well, we can't invite one without the other three. So we won't invite any of them. So those were all obviously all the pluses. And I felt very special and cherished. It is a bit lonely, though. And I do wonder about only children during the pandemic because my source of social interaction and my way to not be lonely was to be at school, to be at summer camp, to be at other people's houses. And all of those things have ended during lockdown. Um, So while I don't have any concerns for your 14 year old for their broader life, because you make friends, like I just said earlier on this podcast, like Cahill is like my brother. I don't consider myself an only child in that regard because you make friends that are deeply connected to you. Um, I do have concerns, you know, for only children in lockdown, but I guess, you know, children are very resilient and there is no other you know, you've said that you and your husband aren't going to have any more kids. So there's no point in beating yourself up over that fact and just making the life as best you can for the only child, knowing that they will make their own way in the world and have the best life that they can. And, you know, there are plenty of siblings, uh, children who have siblings who wish that they were only children. And plenty of only children who wish they had siblings. But I think it's just human nature to always want what you can't have. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be, um, cutting down on screen time or anything like that for only children during lockdown and allowing them to connect as much as they can with, um, their peers. So it's kind of a short term worry really, because only children we're grand in the long run, if not maybe a little bit selfish and find it difficult to share. So that is all for this week. Thank you so much for your questions. I will do a mailbox episode again soon if you guys enjoyed this. If you did enjoy it, please can you like it and review it. You can contact me on Instagram or on Twitter. And the best thing that you can do for me for this podcast is if you enjoy it, just tell one friend about it. Send a link, share it around. I would love to get the listenership up. It's already very high, higher than I could imagine. Actually, I'll give the figures to you sometime because I'll get them from Alan. And I'll put them in here because I often want to know how many listeners a podcast has when I'm listening. Thank you for your support as ever. Bye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.